You know, I, I love those fall nights. It's not like the summer where it can get really hot, and even in uh, the, the summer evenings, it can be so hot and sticky and, and uncomfortable. And it's not like the winter when it can be almost unbearable when you're outside for a really long time. I like those nights when it's somewhat like it was this past Friday night when we had the bonfire out back. Now, that was even a little bit cold for me. I, I, I didn't want to be out there too long. But, uh, you know, I love those nights when you can kind of put on a sweatshirt, uh, stand around a fire, drink some hot chocolate, drink some uh, apple, hot apple cider, uh, roast some marshmallows, make some s'mores. You know, fall evenings are a lot of fun, aren't they? There's a game that I used to love to play in the fall, back in my younger days, you know, back when I could run. But um, the game was called Kick the Can, and some of you are familiar with it. You play it at night, and you play it in the shadows so that it's a little bit challenging to, in order to see people. But years ago, uh, I used to play Kick the Can around here, around the church, outside, and the way it would work is that we had this coffee can and we would put it on the sidewalk just leading up to the building right outside on the Winchester side of the church here. And so there, there was one person who was it. Everybody else would go and hide. Now that person who was it, usually it was me, but they, they would have to go and try and catch everyone else. When, when you got caught, you would have to go to jail and you couldn't get out unless someone would kick the can off of the sidewalk. Now, the person who was it would have to go and grab that can, take it back, and put it back on the sidewalk before they could catch people again. The great thing about kick the can is that, you know, you, you have to try to catch people, but you don't have to run and, and tap everyone. All, all you have to do is you have to see them, and you say their name, and you touch the can before it can be kicked by somebody. Now, it's really challenging when you're running around outside in the shadows at night to see people clearly. And, you know, if there's 25, 30 people and they're running around, it can get quite confusing, especially when they start taking their sweatshirts and exchanging them with each other. And you're like, who's who? Uh, because you were trying to go on what they were wearing. But, you know, it can get a little confusing. And that's what makes it so fun. You know, those, uh, playing these games in the shadows at night, you, you, can, you can maybe see somebody from a distance and you're calling out a name and, and it's actually somebody else. You know, trying to figure out who a person is when they're far away in the dark, in the shadows can be a little challenging. But, you know, you, you see them up close and all of a sudden things become a lot more clear. I think that that's a lot of times the way we look at the Old Testament. That, you know, there's these characters and these events, and they seem so far away from us that, that they almost seem irrelevant to us. What, what relevance does that have to our lives today? It doesn't seem to matter to us too much. We don't seem to focus on the Old Testament very much. We don't talk about or read about or study the Old Testament very much. And the Old Testament, though, is so full of rich stories, valuable lessons that are important for us today. And so this morning, we're going to kick off a new sermon series in the Old Testament, and we're calling it Shadows. Now, we're going to be on a bit of a search. We're on a bit of a hunt, if you will, for glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, we're going to be flying through a whole bunch of verses this morning, and so I want to just give you a heads up about that, but I'm going to 
I, I want you to, I'm going to have you turn to a few passages this morning, but we'll also have them up on the screen so that you can see them for yourself. But I want you to also, uh, maybe you want to take out a piece of paper, take your notes out of your bulletin, and write these verses down as well. You can look them up for yourself later. Some of you might be thinking, well, why are we doing this series? I mean, maybe even better yet, you're saying, how? I mean, how are we going to find Jesus in the Old Testament? I mean, isn't the Old Testament about God? And it, it seems like God is like angry, mad all the time, pouring out his wrath on people. He's angry God. You know, you get to the New Testament and it's about Jesus. God in the Old Testament seems to be upset. And, and then it seems like he goes to like anger management classes or something and he gets things worked out. And he gets to the New Testament and he's nice and kind God. You know, we really don't spend a whole lot of time studying or thinking about God in the Old Testament, I don't think. And, and yet, you know, we get to the New Testament, we see God, and we think, we think about how God is portrayed, it seems, in the New Testament as a God of love and joy and peace. And I mean, Jesus, he's hanging out with children. He's hanging out with lambs. Isn't that great? We like that. We, we don't want to talk about the God of the Old Testament who seems angry and just and vengeful God. Now, what I'm trying to do is, is make a point here. Many people think of the Bible in that way. Many people read the Bible or look at the Bible with that kind of a framework. And even if we don't maybe say those exact words, we often treat the Bible in that way. That the Old Testament is kind of confusing to us. That there are names like Obadiah and Habakkuk. I mean, we don't even know where those books are half the time. We can't find them. In the New Testament, we have names like John. I mean, we like to be able to, we can say John. I mean, that's an easy name to say. We like John or, or, or Matthew. I mean, we get that. We, we don't uh, read Revelation too much because that kind of freaks us out. But, you know, we like the New Testament. The Old Testament seems kind of confusing. We don't get it. We start talking about finding Jesus in the Old Testament, and a lot of times we think, doesn't Jesus come along in the New Testament as a baby? I mean, wasn't he born as a baby in the New Testament? At the beginning of the New Testament, I mean, isn't that the beginning for him? Why are we talking about Jesus before that? Why are we talking about Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, so maybe you're here and you're wondering... How are we going to do this? Why are we going to do this? I mean, what's the point of all of this? I want to give you a few reasons right here at the beginning of this series and at the beginning of the message this morning as to why it is that we're looking for glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. All right, first, I want to give you some theological reasons. And the first theological reason is that the scriptures point to Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures specifically here point ahead to Jesus. John chapter 5, there's this discussion, to, to put it nicely, between Jesus and the religious leaders. In John chapter 9 and verse or John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus says this. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, what scriptures is Jesus talking about there? Well, he's not talking about the New Testament because the New Testament, as we know it, didn't exist at that point. He's talking about the scriptures that we call the Old Testament. And he's saying that those scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, point to him, bear witness about him. 
the, the, the books of the law, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the, and the prophets talk about him. Now, how is that true? I mean, you, you never hear the name Jesus in the Old Testament, so how is that true? Well, the next number of weeks, we are going to spend some time looking at and talking about and thinking about this. So John chapter 5 and verse 39 shows us that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. But then there's this story in the New Testament uh, um, that we looked at recently, the, Romans, uh, or, or the, the road to Emmaus. Many of you might remember how in our recent study through the Gospel of Luke, we were talking about and looking at that particular story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. That Jesus, he had died on a Roman cross. He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he was raised back to life. And at that point, none of his disciples actually knew that he was alive yet, that he had been raised back to life yet. And so two of his disciples, they're on their way home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're discouraged because their leader is dead. And Jesus shows up and he begins to walk with them. And they don't recognize who he is. And as they're going to Emmaus, it says there in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus went through the entire Old Testament and he explains to these two disciples as they're traveling along that these passages in the Old Testament point forward to him, talk about him. If you keep reading just a few verses after that, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 32, these same disciples, they're talking together. Jesus is now no longer with them any longer and, and he's, he's left them and, and they say to each other, they say, did, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And St. Paul's Bible Church, my desire, my heart's hope for us the, the, through this series is that our hearts would burn as we walk together, as we talk together, as we look at these things together. I mean, I'm talking Rolaids type of burning. And the reality is that these words are not just words on the pages of some random book somewhere. This is the living, breathing, active power of God on display. And it's just as powerful today as it has ever been. The Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus. And it's not just some of them, but all of these books of Moses on through the prophets point forward to him. And not only do the scriptures point to Jesus, but also the scriptures are then fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, they point to me and I fulfill them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says that the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. What are these realities? Well, if you keep reading in that context of Hebrews chapter 10, you get to verse 5 and verse 10. It says that the reality is Jesus come in the flesh. And that's what the book of Hebrews focuses on. It focuses on the fulfillment, that Jesus came and fulfilled all of these things from the Old Testament. 
Hebrews, we see that Jesus is better than Moses. That he is better than the angels. He is better than the high priest. He is better than the prophets. And over and over and over again, you hear better than, better than, better than. He is perfect. And all of these things point to Jesus. Now, when we talk about Jesus fulfilling, what is it that we are talking about? What, what is it? How do these things point to Jesus? How is he the fulfillment? One of the most obvious ways that we talk about this is often we talk about this at Christmas time and at Easter. We talk about the Old Testament prophecies. Now, we're not going to focus on those things so much here in this series. But the Old Testament is, uh, is full of dozens of prophecies about the coming of Jesus. What he's going to be like and, and what, it, what it's going to be like, where he's going to be born, where he's uh, going to die, what, he, what, what those circumstances are going to look like, how he's going to betrayed, be uh, he's, he's going to be betrayed. That the, these are the type of things that we see throughout the Old Testament that point forward to Christ. And so prophetically, the Old Testament points to Jesus. But then also we see that there are people in the Old Testament who point to Jesus. And this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time here in this series. How people point to Jesus. Adam points to Jesus. Jonah, Job, Moses, Isaac, Esther, Ruth. All throughout the Old Testament we see people, uh, many, many different kinds of people from many different walks of life who are pointing forward to Jesus. Romans chapter 5 and verse 14, it says this, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning is not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so what we want to do over the next several weeks is we want to look at some of these Old Testament characters who are kind of foreshadowing what it was to come in the New Testament. Jesus was coming. And these Old Testament characters, these Old Testament people are pointing towards him. So we have prophecies that point to Jesus, people that point to Jesus. There are also events that point to Jesus. Things like Isaac when he was sacrificed, about to be sacrificed by his father uh, on the altar. Abraham was about to sacrifice him or Jonah in the whale. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus says this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So events point to Jesus. Feasts, feasts in the Old Testament point to Jesus. Manna that God sends to the Israelites in the wilderness, that points to Jesus. Exodus chapter 17, uh, God is uh, talking to Moses there and he tells him to go over and to strike this rock and that when he does that, that water is going to come out of that rock for the people. And in that context, God says, I will be on that rock and I want you to strike it. You know, you get to the New Testament and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing there and he says that that rock that God told Moses to strike in Exodus was Christ. Events point to Jesus. Israel, the big picture of Israel points to Jesus. Now, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and how many disciples does he have? How many disciples does he pick? Twelve, right? 
to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. How many uh, days does he spend in the wilderness? He spends 40 days. Just, just like similar to what the Israelites did, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. He faces temptation. He experiences victory. He's baptized. He comes and he begins his ministry. And he is the new Israel. He is the perfect Israel. Israel points forward to Jesus. Functions and offices point to Jesus. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Get to Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 11 and 12 and they say this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, there's a lot there that we could talk about and, and spend a lot of time there on that this morning. But the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is our high priest. That, 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 that's a, 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 an extremely significant thing, that Jesus is our great high priest. So, functions and offices point to Jesus. And then lastly, the law points to Jesus. That the law is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now... You know, it would be really easy to kind of start looking for Jesus everywhere. I mean, and I want to give us a little bit of a warning here because, because we don't want to take this too far. You know, we can start reading through the Old Testament and start seeing that every tassel becomes about Jesus and every number becomes about Jesus. And every single little detail becomes about Jesus. And so we want to just be careful not to take this too far. But I hope that we can see here that there are some really significant theological reasons why we're going to be doing this study together. And I also want us to see that there are some practical reasons for doing this study as well. You know, oftentimes we, we look, as, as I said earlier, we look at the Old Testament and we, we don't want to read it all that much. We don't study it too much because, quite frankly, it seems confusing to us. It, we, we, we don't understand it and we, we don't see how it fits into the larger picture of what it is that God's doing. I mean, just the fact that it's called the Old Testament. I mean, we don't really like things that are old or, or archaic. We like the new stuff, don't we? we give us something new, right? I, I, think about the, I think that there are things also in the Old Testament that are kind of troubling to us that we don't really understand all that much. But you know, it's a good thing. For us to wrestle with these issues, to, to kind of uh, understand them better. We want to have a better, more clear understanding of this great God that we serve. Think about what Paul says to his young son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses, 13 through, uh, or verses 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction... And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so... As we stay faithful, 
as we study the scriptures together, they give us great hope. They give us great encouragement for life today. And most importantly, St. Paul's, my prayer is that our love and our understanding and our awe of Jesus would be deepened and be strengthened through this series together. That is my great desire. That is the prayer of my heart for us in this. And so that's the reason why we're doing this study together and kind of where it is that we're going to be heading over the next number of weeks. But with, with the remainder of our time this morning, what I would like you to do is to grab a Bible and to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And again, we'll have these verses up on the screen and we're going to be looking at a number of verses as well. Um, but this is kind of like our jump-off point, if you will. This is kind of like the starting point uh, for today. And, and the Apostle Paul is writing there, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And here is what he says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about here, but I want to focus in on this truth today. And the truth is this, that the Sabbath is a shadow, is a foreshadowing of the things to come. But the substance, the reality, is found in Christ. Now, how, the question is how. I mean, how are, are, are we take, how is taking a day off of work each week a shadow of Jesus? How is that true? How does that work? Well, in order to kind of get an answer to that question, I want, I want to just read from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. And here's what we read. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So God creates the world. He creates everything in six days, sun, moon, stars. He, he creates the land and the plants and the animals and the birds, the reptiles, the plants, or the, the trees, the, the water, people. He creates all of these things in six days. On the seventh day, after seeing everything that he had made, and he, and he responds with this glorious uh, phrase, it is very good. And it says that on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. So that's the very beginning. That, that's, uh, how, that's what happens with God. That's what God does in creation. But then we move forward to the law. And, and we move forward in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20 and verses 8 through 11... Um, again, we have the origins back in creation, and then we have the law. Now, I'm trying to build a case here, so you need to kind of stay here with me and, and follow this along. But here's what the fourth law in the Ten Commandments says. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the testimony of the Bible is that you see the origin of the Sabbath in creation, and then you see the observation of the Sabbath in the law, that it is connected, that in the law is connected to the six days of creation. That because God rested, that we as well are to rest. Now, I want to jump ahead with you to Jesus here. And uh, you might be thinking, well, we're jumping all over the place. Where, how is all of this connected? Where are you going with this? Well, in just a moment, this is all going to come together, and it's going to be good. It's going to be glorious. You know, um, Matthew chapter 12. If you want to join me there, Matthew chapter 12. You read through the Gospels, and one of the things that stands out in the Gospels is how many times Jesus chooses to do something on the Sabbath. And he actually makes it worse for himself by doing this. I mean, he, he does this over and over again. He says things like, you know, just wait another day. And, and you think, well, why are you waiting? I mean, you're God. You could do it right now. Why are you waiting another day? Or there are other places in the, in the scriptures where it's like he, uh, he does something on the Sabbath. He actually could have waited another day in order to do it. it, it why, you say, well, why are you creating so many problems for yourself, Jesus? I mean, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? Because, you know, by the time Jesus comes along the, the, on the scene, there are these uh, Jewish religious leaders, and they have all sorts of rules, all sorts of regulations of what it is that you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Well, Matthew chapter 12, and I want to begin reading there in verse 1. Here's what we read. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He, Jesus, said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat. Now, you, 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 you weren't supposed to do that. It wasn't lawful. Jesus even says that it wasn't lawful. It was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or, and here's a second example that he gives. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, how do they profane it? They profane it by working. They're, they're, these priests are working on the Sabbath. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 9. He went on from there and entered, in, uh, entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of, uh, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, there's a lot in this passage, and I want to just point out a few things here uh, to us this morning. Number one, verse six. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is talking about himself, he, he's, that, that he is greater than the temple. But, but we could also say in this context that Jesus is, is also saying he's greater than King David and he is greater than the Sabbath. So verse 6 and then verse 8, that, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the master. He is the owner. Jesus is saying the origin of the Sabbath lies with me, that the Sabbath is about me, actually. Verse 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying here, and and, and these are not just my thoughts here, but others who are much smarter than I are saying this as well, but what Jesus is saying is that there are some laws that trump others on the Sabbath. Jesus never argues with the religious leaders about whether uh, what David did on the Sabbath was legal or not legal. In fact, he says that it wasn't legal. He never argues uh, about whether what his disciples were doing on the Sabbath was legal or not when they ate the grain. He's not arguing about that. That's what he's saying when he gets to verse 7. And you look there again at verse 7, and this is a quote from Hosea. And God says there, he says... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And if you have to pick one, pick mercy. And then in verse 11, he gives this example and he says, hey, what about you guys? I mean, if there's a sheep, you have a sheep and it falls into the pit on on the Sabbath. Don't you go, what do you do? You go and you get it out, right? Why? Because that makes sense. That's what you guys do. David he had his men, and they were, they were hungry, and, and so he feeds them. Why? Because it makes sense. I, I, my guys, they're walking along, and they're hungry. I mean, they're so hungry that they're actually grabbing stalks of grain. They're rubbing it in their hands, and they're eating it on the Sabbath, and I let them. Why? Well, because it makes sense. Where, where's all of this going? Well, if you get to, when you get to verses 9 through 11 here, and Jesus plays this whole thing out, and he says, look... It makes sense that when I walk into the, uh, to a synagogue on the Sabbath and I see a man who has a withered hand there, that I'm, I'm going to heal him because I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I, I desire mercy over sacrifice. So what's the main point in all of this? Well, the main point is that the Sabbath exists in order to display the sun. It is all about Jesus. Now, If you remember back to Genesis 2 and back to Exodus chapter 20, the Sabbath is about creation and redemption and culmination. What does Jesus do so often on the Sabbath that gets him in so much trouble? Well, he's healing people, he's restoring, he is bringing new life. And that's not an accident that those things are the things that he's doing on the Sabbath. We've been looking at a lot of different passages this morning, so why not go to one more? John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Now, the same type of situation here is going on. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He heals this man who's been hanging out at a pool for 38 years. 
And so to even make it worse, he tells this guy to get up and to do some work. He tells him to pick up his mat and to walk. And this is why the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus because of all these kinds of things that he's doing on the Sabbath. It says in John chapter 5 and verse 17 there, But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why is he doing that? Well, because he is God. He is God. Again, there's a lot here, but verse 17, Jesus says this, My father is working until now, and I am working. What kind of work is he talking about? I mean, is he talking about plucking heads of grain? Is he talking about picking up mats and walking? Is that what he's talking about? What kind of work is he talking about that is getting him into so much trouble here? Well, he's about healing. He's about wholeness. He's about bringing reconciliation. He's about redemption. And why does Jesus do this so often on the Sabbath? Inviting controversy, even inviting death. Jesus does this because uh, he does this so often because it is rooted in who he is. It is rooted in what he is all about. When, When God had finished his work of creation, he looked at it and he said, it is very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. But then sin enters into the world. And with that, God begins to work again. And what kind of work is Jesus and his father participating in? They are doing the work of reconciliation and forgiveness and wholeness and redemption. What does Jesus offer to us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Here's what we read there. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When did he finish this work? Remember, Jesus, he was on the cross. He's hanging there, sacrificing himself, laying himself down. And on the cross, he cries out and he says, it is finished. He dies He's placed in a tomb three days later. He's raised back to life. He stays on this earth for another 40 days. He ascends. When he gets to heaven, what does he do? Well, he sits down. He rests. It is finished. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says this in a very well-known passage to us. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, Jesus is our Sabbath. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you finding rest for your souls, St. Paul's? Are, are, Are your souls resting this morning? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is the Sabbath rest that remains? And how do we enter into that rest? Well, it is Jesus. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is the means and Jesus is the way. And so we come back to Colossians chapter 2 again, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Why would we be satisfied with religious tasks? Why would we be satisfied with just going through the motions? Why would we be satisfied with the shadows when we could have the real thing? And so what's the application for us today? Well, I think the application is actually really easy. It's really easy to talk about. It's really easy to say, but not so easy to live out because it requires that we need to lay some things down. You know, some of us are working really hard. Some of us are striving and laboring and we are worrying and we are hoping that we just do enough in order to be right with God on our own. Sadly, you know, what's often true of many Christians today, we are anxious and we are worried about many things. We're anxious and worried about so many things just like the rest of the people of the world, people who don't have Christ. I mean, have you ever been there? No, no different than your neighbor? No different than your unsaved classmates? No different than your unsaved co-workers in the cubicle next to you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Me, I've done the work. You don't need to. Not you. Rest is what we need. Rest in Jesus is what we need. I want to ask the worship team to come and we're going to sing a closing song together this morning. And as they're saying, I want to just uh, leave you with this. Some of you may be here this morning and you're striving in your own efforts to be saved. You're striving in your own efforts in order to be right with God. Well, I want to tell you today to put that aside, to stop working on your own. It is an endless battle that's going to lead you nowhere. You need a Savior. You need Jesus to be your rest. You need Jesus' work on the cross to take your place. For those of us who do know Jesus, who have received him as the Savior, are we allowing his rest to be demonstrated in our lives? Or are we just anxious and worried about many things? Rest. Rest in Jesus is what we really need.